the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Emily Hutchinson. And, and I'm your co-host, Laura Munoz. And we are here with Esmin Uderen. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. We're really excited to talk to you and hear about your research. First, can you tell us what department you're from and in very generally, what do you study? Sure. Uh, I'm in neuroscience department. I started as a master's student and I reclassified as PhD a couple of months ago. Uh, So I have two different projects. Uh, One is we are looking at myelin content in mouse brain, if we can improve myelin with behavioral learning. And with my other project, we are looking at resting state uh, functional networks in APP neck and mass model, which is a model for Alzheimer's disease. Wow, that, that's really interesting. So you said uh, that you do behavioral learning. So what, what is behavioral learning and how is it different from any other kinds of learning? Are there other kinds of learning? Yes, uh, it can be motor learning. Uh, you can basically learn anything that you're using your limbs, your food. It can be learning a sports, learning how to juggle, uh, or for animals, how to run on those speed wheels they have in their cages. Um, For behavioral learning, we are using a mechanism called touch-screen operant chambers. Uh, which basically animals play on iPad tasks. They are touching on the screen and um, their right option, wrong option, or you can give them any kind of uh, task. You can um, use a new task or something that generated from the old tasks and they get strawberry milkshake as words. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's classical conditioning or like Pavlovian conditioning. You might heard from uh, Pavlo's dog, how it rings a bell and they now have to get their food. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So if, if we have this different kind of learning, how do you measure if someone's learning or no? Oh, so we have, for my task, uh, we have two groups. The one group is learning and the other is the other group is not learning. And I basically give them two different boxes on the screen and they need to touch one location. And if they touch that location, it's the right option and they get the strawberry milkshake. And if they touch the other location, it's the wrong option. And they get a cue before the trial. So if the queue is on the left side, for example, they need to go to right side to get the reward. And for my group that's not learning the task, these associations are randomized. So it can be queue on the left, right answer can be left or right. They don't know, I don't know. It's just randomized with computer. And we are aiming that they're not gonna learn anything, but even in that case, they learn, for example, how to look at the screen, how to respond to screen. So that's kind of a motor learning, for example. How long does it take for the mice to learn? Like I, I never think of mice as something like they're so small and their brains are so little, but how quickly do they get that task? 
I know it's one of the things that I was so amazed during my undergrad because like I was thinking the same questions like mice they are doing tasks and cognitive tasks they need to solve a problem on a text screen like how they learn that and then I saw they can do very complex tasks and they are very intelligent um their brain uh, I can say like it's so similar it's not like marmoset or macaque but it's actually similar and they're intelligent animals um and of course the rewards helps them to uh, learn things and we like arrange the timing like we don't feed before the task so they can be hungry and more motivated to um do the task okay so now that you have your mice uh solving task what do you do with that mice with those mice Right, uh, so we give them uh, for my particular task, which if anyone's wondering is trial, unique, not matching to location, it's tunnel, um, T-U-N-L with plastic greens. Uh, we give them total 25 sessions to let them learn, which you ask how long does it take? It takes like, amount but they also need to go through pre-training sessions where they need to learn what is touch screen how they can touch screen and get to work or even before that they just put in the mechanism so they can just explore what's in there and we can also record their movement in this uh, mechanism because there are ir beams uh, and it counts how many times the animal passed that laser Mm -hmm. um so yes with 25 sessions that's one month and with pre-training that's another month it takes two months of training and after that because i want to see what changes happening in their brain um my first thing that i do after the training is scan them on mri at 9.40 uh, and they go through an X vivo very long scan so we can get their brain image very in a very big quality. So we can see these very little structures, microstructures like myelin, because that's, a, that's just something surrounds the neuron um, axon. And yes, I scan them on MRI and eventually I analyze how their images looking between these groups and see if learning really affected uh, their brain, if it really changed the structure of the brain. So you put the mice in the MRI machine. Is this similar to like the MRIs they have in the hospital, like these huge machines? Like what does this look like when you go to do that? Is there like a tiny little slot where you put the mouse? What, what happens there? Exactly. Uh, actually, the uh, MRI scanner that I am using for my animals, the 9.40 at Western University, is just for small animals. So a marmoset or mice or rats, they can be scanned there, but humans can't be scanned there. Um, it's, it's a huge, huge machine and it's so funny I learned maybe not 9.4 Tesla but one of the MRIs in the same area uh, to build them inside the, our building they took off a wall wow. <laughs> they remove a wall so they can put the scanner in there 
just to fit uh, into the room. Yes. That's incredible. Yeah. Multi-million dollar and like big machine. Um, and they have their coils uh, according to animals. Uh, we also have in Western CFMM 7T and 3 Tesla uh, in those scanners, they use both humans and animals. And I've been actually scanned on all the scanners because people always need participants. Um, uh, yes, uh, I was in the same scanner with an animal actually, but not my animals. <laughs> Excellent. So once you, you mentioned that you, in the MRI, you check how the myelin concentration changes in the brain. Can you tell us a, a little bit about what this molecule is and why is it important? Sure. Uh, so myelin is a structure surrounds the axon, which is a part of neuron that transmits the signal. And what is very fascinating about myelin, um, we born with an unmyelinated central nervous system, which is our brain. And from birth through the adulthood, we develop this myelin. Um, as much as neurons communicate with each other, action potentials happening, and myelin starts to develop more. And there are very um, exciting studies about these uh, showing even in the adulthood, you can change the myelin, even the cells, which are oligodendrous cells that makes myelin. There are new oligodendrous sites in the brain when you um, uh, improve that neural activity in the specific brain area. For example, um, motor learning, like I mentioned, they saw with people who juggles, juggling, um, they had improved um, FA measures, which is also correlates with myelin. So they say, um, and with animal studies as well, they saw improved um, new oligodendrocytes and new myelination uh, in the brain in adulthood. This is very important because it's, it's very uh, common knowledge that people say, brain stops developing after adolescence, which you really shouldn't say that if you're in the neuroscience department, but the, this study is obviously showing it doesn't stop developing. You literally physically change the structure of the brain. You can do this in adulthood. Really cool. So if learning increases the concentration of myelin, are there any cases of human disease where myelin concentration decreases? Like in older adults or with dementia, do, they, do you see loss of myelin as that happens? Yes, exactly. And this is uh, one of my next questions. Um, for example, uh, multiple sclerosis, uh, it's the demyelination disease. Uh, that's a big problem with that disease. But other than that, there are other neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease that's also affected by demyelination or um, the neuronal loss. And I'm wondering if we can somehow increase the neuronal activity in the regions that these diseases are affected. Can we uh, prevent or maybe uh, ease down the symptoms in these diseases, but yet we don't know, but it's my PhD project, basically. <laughs> 
So in order for you to incorporate that variable, the variable of uh, uh, mental diseases, will you have to uh, make the mice sick? <laughs> or how do you do it if you want to know if their concentration of, of myelin in the brain is actually decreasing? Uh, yes, unfortunately, we need to make some genetic mutations on mice. Uh, I'm not going to do that personally, but we have a lab in Western University, Prado Lab. They are breeding this APP neck and mice model, which is uh, an Alzheimer's disease mouse model, uh, and they improve this amyloid betaplex. Um, a problem with this disease models, you can't uh, make an animal directly Alzheimer's because that's a disease defined for humans. So we can only have a model of that and it just um, covers a part of the disease because it's, it doesn't, uh, with Alzheimer's, uh, there's not just one factor that causes the disease and it's still an ongoing research that what causes Alzheimer's. There's so many factors and the combinations of those. With APP neck and mouse, um, the, one of the biggest biomarkers is plaques in Alzheimer's patients. And this mouse model, they improve this plaques after a couple of months, like at three, four, month depends on the model. Right. So that's to like increase how quickly, because I guess mice only live for a few years, but humans will take like decades to develop it. And so it's the idea that you'll have a mouse that ages quickly and then you can study the, the model right away. Yes, um, I haven't started with it, but that, that's also another conversation that's going on, like when exactly they start to develop these plugs and how much these plugs affect their cognition compared to human cognition. Um, what I'm trying to do is uh, give them some cognitive tasks that they can improve uh, their um, neuronal activity um, and then see in the later stages before they develop disease and then later they develop disease like three, four months, maybe around seven, eight months when it's very, very high, the amyloid beta plaques. Um, see if the group that learned uh, a new task is different than the group that didn't learn anything. Uh, because, you know, they always ask, for example, uh, doing Sudoku, you know, uh, improves your brain. Uh, does it help anything? Um, they say no, um, mostly, uh, but it can. Um, if you're doing Sudoku all day, every day, it's probably not very effectual. But as much as new inputs coming into your brain, I guess that should be helpful. Uh, I, I don't want to tell that to my grandma. She loves to do goo puzzles and all that. But are, are there ways that we can actually improve our brains? Like once we leave university and start doing our jobs, like how, how can older adults and us like keep learning and keep our brains healthy in that way? Um, what I learned is just uh, doing new stuff, like 
going even out, seeing new places, because they're different kind of neuronal activity than just going to Hurtons that you go every day because you see different stuff. Um, I think that would be more helpful than doing Sudoku every day. But this is too much to say. Uh, still needs lots of research, uh, which tests, because there's also lots of studies showing too much cognitive tasks in humans doesn't actually show anything. Mm. Um, but for example, uh, learning how to play piano um, shows difference in your brain with myelin as well. Mm -hmm. And obviously, since we are seeing that you can change, you can improve the myelin in your brain in adulthood, maybe learning a new skill like playing piano or like guitar, uh, even that might be helpful. So just to be clear, any type of view of new activities that we do increase the content of myelin in our brains? Is that how it works? I, I really can't say that. It would be very, very wrong for oh. me to say that. It's something that still people do research on. But so far, we are seeing with this kind of stuff, there are changes that are detectable. But of course, this is not like um, a huge change that you can directly see these are microscopic changes. Uh, and, you, cognition. and you mentioned before that there are different types of learning. So there are some motor learning or cognitive learning. So with different kind of tasks, do you see also a difference? Like if you're learning the mouse to do more motor learning, is that different from when you teach them to touch the screen? Yes, because different brain areas included for motor learning, it's motor area, but with um, um, memory task, it will be hippocampus with working memory or learning, it will be uh, frontal areas. Um, it depends on uh, what kind of task you're using. Uh, but that's also one of the other questions that we should ask what happens with other kind of tasks. So I looked at cognitive learning, uh, which, uh, but that was just working memory and just uh, rule learning task, but there are more detailed tasks and I would like to see what's going on with that. The touchscreen technology sounds like very cutting edge. Is this a relatively new way of training and teaching mice? Like I remember like in undergrad, like learning different strategies, like the they'll push a button or something like that. So how, like, is this a new thing? Um, yes, it's relatively new thing. Um, it's now almost all around the world, not everywhere, but there used to be this classic traditional chambers when uh, there is an experimenter who touches the animal for each trial. Let's say it's a big maze or it's the um, pool like uh, Morris water maze. And for each trial, you need to take the animal and put it back to starting place. And then you need to watch it. You need to video record it. Um, that's how you record uh, how many times that they did 
correct answer or how fast they are moving, how, uh, what is the delay. But with touch sequence, you can just have as much as trial you want and you don't interact with the animal, which really reduces all those confounding variables because when you touch the animal experimenter, uh, it stresses the animal and uh, it changes their response to task. Uh, it's also um, less invasive mm -hmm. um, and you give them survey mix, I guess, for it. Um, it, and you can just record their movement, like I said, with laser, you don't, you can also video record them. Um, and you can just give them any kind of task because with classical traditional mazes, you have one maze and that's it. But with plastic green, you can design anything. You can see how they're responding different colors, different shapes, uh, reversal learning, short-term memory, attention. You can just measure anything that you want. And uh, people constantly um, developing new tasks or um making these old tasks uh, compatible for touchscreen tasks so how do they interact with the screen do they touch it with their little nose or yes. <laughs> yes, they touch with their you know spoke and like with their hands sometimes um but mostly nose touch and uh, nose poke is accepted yeah. <laughs> it's very sweet that they they eat strawberry milkshake as the reward i would have guessed like cheese or peanut butter how did how did you know how they figured out that mice love strawberry milkshake um i i think that's i'm i'm not sure but uh, it was maybe random just because they like sweet stuff, but the milkshake mm. that we are giving is literally the milkshake on the shelves. And I, I tasted it before the milkshake they, they are tasting. It tastes really good. And some people try like different milkshakes than strawberry, like banana milkshakes, but it seems like they like strawberry a lot. <laughs> Favorite. That's amazing that you tried the milkshake. It's like after the long day of work, you and the mice can enjoy a nice strawberry milkshake together. <laughs> I love that. Uh, what's, what is your favorite part about your job? What, what gets you most excited? Honestly, I am really excited to use this technology. Just seeing that we can do this kind of stuff uh with like touch screens and like record everything in the moment and watch them they are doing tasks on the screen on the video recorder um i think that's very amazing and the other thing that amazes me how clever these animals are there are uh many occasions they solve how to hack the tasks so we need to understand why these animals are doing crazily good or very, very bad because they somehow hacked the um, program and now they can collect their reward as much as they want. Um, it, this happened a couple of times. The, it can be a problem with the task. Um, you, you need to be very clever, more clever than them. And uh, most amazing that it's it's translational. You can use the same task for humans without making any change for most of it. So I would like to go a little bit into the results, how you analyze your data. So 
well, I guess that with the MRI, what you get is a lot of images. And then from those images, you have to measure the content of certain substances on the brain. So do you do this uh, with a software or how do you actually get your results and analyze your data? Um, thank you for asking this because <laughs> I think this is a problem with small animals because with humans, we have a lot of sources, a lot of short softwares to use, but with small animals like mice and rats, um, it's a little bit difficult to find the right parameters and right software. Uh, but for myelin um, study, uh, we are using a scan called MP2 range, and we are looking at their T1 maps. They are quantitative maps which are um, showing um, T1 relaxation rates. It's milliseconds, um, and it's negatively correlated with myelin. So I'm looking at their T1 relaxation rates, just like as milliseconds, and <laughs> just analyze that on like statistics and statistics software. Um, but for the for my other fMRI project, which is more complicated, uh, we are actually developing a pipeline for that with um, um, user interface because other things, uh, other softwares that are made for small animals are just used on terminal and you need to really code <laughs> uh, everything. Uh, there are some nice um, softwares too, but they're just developing and it's a very new area or like not very new, but it's like a best while everyone doing their own, own thing and it's not standardized and so important for imaging studies. It should be standardized. Uh, and we are trying to do that with my other project. Um, so if you, I know you still have a few more years left of this project and another side project on the go, but where could you see this work going in the future? Where, where is all this headed? What's going to happen in later years? Uh, I really want to see if this could help to Alzheimer's disease. Um, if, if we can give people kind of like cognitive tasks in their uh, early years, would that, would that really help their um, memory uh, problems in the later years, I would like to see. Uh, and because there is, we can't reverse Alzheimer's disease with uh, medication, uh, but maybe with in early treatment, we can add this cognitive like learning and like problem solving, those kind of stuff. And maybe that can help their cognition. Um, it will be great because it's one of the biggest problem that their memory loss and cognition. Excellent. And uh, now that we're closing, I, I was just wondering how was your job or your research affected by COVID? Were you still able to go to the lab or who took care of the mice? How did you deal with all of that? Um, I was kind of lucky about that because I started my uh, grad uh, school before COVID and I was able to partially start one of my projects. 
and COVID happened in, in the middle of it. And because it included animals, I was one of the essential workers. So I continued to go. But then uh, for my second project uh, that hasn't started yet um, in that time, um, I need to wait for a while, uh, just stay at home, analyze and read. Um, and then when it started to open uh, gradually, again, I was one of the essential workers because of it was an animal research. Uh, so it didn't really corrupted me, um, but uh, for a little bit of time, it did. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Esmond. Do you have any social media where people can follow your research career? Do you have a, a science Twitter or anything like that you'd like to share? Yes, thank you. Uh, they can find me both on Instagram and Twitter with my first name and last name. Very basic, very classic, uh, nothing special. Just my first name and last name for both of the accounts. Please ask or correct me if I said anything wrong. I'm sorry. And Please excuse my accent too. I try my best. <laughs> You've been great. Thank you so much. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Emily Hutchinson, and my co-host was Laura Munoz-Bina, and we've been speaking with Esmen Uniran, and this episode is also produced by Laura. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, you can email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at, at gradcastradio. And to listen to us, we're on the radio on Radio Western 94.9 FM. And you can find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on whatever your favorite podcast app is. Thank you for listening and have a great night.